Hello and welcome to Employment Talk. We're here to discuss the HR issues affecting you and keep you up to date with the latest employment law news. My name's Jo Mosley. I write our blogs and newsletters and I keep the team and our clients up to date with what's happening in the world of employment law. And I'm Elaine Hutley. I'm the head of the employment team here at Irwin Mitchell. So I work with our clients to make sure they're on track and work with the team across the country. Is it too late in January to wish you a happy new year, Elaine? I want to know, did you make any resolutions other than becoming our national head of our fantastic employment team? Get you. <laughs> Thanks, Joe. <laughs> um, no, I haven't. And I think I've just over the years more recently admitted defeat of I'm just gonna, not going to stick to them. So no formal resolutions so that I don't fail before the end of January. Oh, me neither. Me neither. And can I just ask, this is completely off topic, but are you doing dry January? Absolutely not. No, me neither. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, what madness is that? I always think January is the worst month to even attempt to do a dry health spell. It's just mm. awful. Chocolate yeah. and wine for me, please. Yeah, I'm with you on that. So, Joe, for our first podcast of 2024, what are we going to start the new year discussing? Well, as it is the start of a new year, I thought it'd be a good time to think about what is going to change and put that within the context of employment law so that our listeners can prepare for the year ahead because there's a fair bit going on. There is. And I was just about to say, is it me or is there a lot for not only HR teams, but line managers to get their head around this year? There is. And I think it's particularly busy this year. I mean, I think in the past, We've been sort of waiting for various proposals to come into force and we've been sort of highlighting those. But this year we know that there are a number of changes that are definitely going ahead. And a lot of these, as I said, have been on the back burner for a while. So I thought we could perhaps chat through a few of those if you're OK with that. That sounds great. Brilliant. So I'm going to ask you to kick off then, Elaine. What do you think is the most significant change or changes that are going to take place this year? So I think the government are reacting and what they're going to do is legislate to try and bring about some changes that we've seen in the headlines and within society mm-hmm. over the past few years in particular to bring about more inclusive work practices. And, and when I say inclusive, I mean in the absolute widest sense. So, for example, thinking about protecting women and returning parents, not just returning mothers, but returning parents facing redundancy. Um, trying to make conversations about flexible working start much earlier and I think a lot of that comes from COVID and hybrid working and the absolute progress that we made in a very short space of time and also tackling the persistent problems around sexual harassment so I think we're going to see lots but quite a bit with a theme around diversity inclusivity that's my prediction. Okay well Shall we start by looking at some of those points that you've identified there? I mean, I suppose before we get on to that, the only thing I would say that in terms of that sort of inclusive piece, there's some other pieces of legislation, aren't there, that are also going to come into force this year, which also sort of fit nicely within that. And there are, I'm thinking about the family friendly changes that are going to come into force, such as carers leave and leave that's going to allow parents of newborns who are too sick um, and they're actually in hospital to actually take time off so that they can properly look after them. But for now, let's just identify and focus on the ones that you've looked at. 
Okay, let's start then at the new protections that parents are going to get if they're facing redundancy. And I think before we talk about what's changing, it might be helpful if you can start by explaining what happens now, please. No problem. So currently, if any employer is going to make any redundancies and they have an employee who's on maternity leave, shared parental leave or adoption leave, if one of those employees is selected for redundancy, actually employers then have to offer them a suitable alternative vacancy in priority to other employees, even if they're not the strongest candidate for that role. Yeah. So what's going to change then? So what we're going to see is that protection at the moment, it only applies during the maternity leave period. So we're seeing the extension of that. So it's going to apply during pregnancy. So from the point that an employee tells their employer that they're pregnant Mm -hmm. throughout the maternity leave period, as we have it at the moment, and then for an additional protected period afterwards as well. So they're going to get the protection for 18 months from the expected week of childbirth. So if they take maternity leave for the full year, they get it for um, the full year plus then an extra period afterwards. And obviously before as well. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Okay. so what about parents who take other types of leave? You've mentioned shared parental leave and adoption leave. How do these rules apply to them? So it's essentially the same. It's an equal playing field. So those employees um, get essentially the same rights as a woman on maternity leave. So they'll get around 18 months protection from the point at which they take the leave, whether that's shared parental leave or adoption leave, they get that protection too. Okay. thank you. So I suppose my thoughts on that is that that's obviously going to extend the pool of people who are protected. And I imagine that in larger organisations, you know, HR may have a situation where there's more than one member of staff that has this enhanced protection. So what would happen in a redundancy situation where, say, there's only one suitable alternative role, um, but the employer has two or more employees who have this enhanced protection to be offered suitable alternative employment. I agree with you completely that I think it will increase, but we are in that position already. So mm. we do have it from time to time under the current regime where we've got two employees who are on maternity leave and only one suitable alternative role. And in that situation, you have two options. So you can score the two who are protected and offer it to the person with the highest score, or you can take an interview-based approach. So you take them through an interview process and then you appoint the strongest candidate. Okay, brilliant. And when's that coming into force? It's coming in in April. So we're talking about this January. We've got a few months to prepare, but you will need to think about practically how you do that. So it's not just about adjusting the mindset. It's about um, reflect, changing your policies and any handbooks to reflect that that's the case, making line managers aware of the changes. And, and we still come across um, plenty of employers who don't realise there is this priority for employees who are on maternity leave at the moment. So it might even actually be the case of saying we need to make everybody aware across the board of the fact of this right, not just the extension of the right. That's interesting. Is that because they don't have HR departments or they're not really involving HR departments in this decision making process? Yeah, a lot of the time. So um, where we come across it, sometimes we have to explain that if we've got a, for example, a smaller client um, or contact who 
as you say, don't have a HR team or they involve HR teams at a later date. And then actually it's revisiting the strategy and the effect of the redundancy because they've failed to identify that actually one person who might have been made redundant actually gets the priority. Yeah, yeah. OK, interesting. So should we move on now to flexible working changes? So employers have had a lot of years now to get to grips with flexible working applications. Are they going to have to start from scratch and get used to a load of new rules, Elaine? No, not really. It's not a fundamental change. It's more a tinkering around the edges. So in, in headline terms, in at currently at the moment, any employee who makes a flexible working request under um, the statutory procedure has to wait until they've got 26 weeks employment till they can put that request in. The change now is that they can do that from day one. They can put that request in and that's allowed. OK. And what's your experience of these sorts of requests, Elaine? Would you say that employers are more flexible than the current laws provide or do they insist that staff wait for the required amount of time before making a request? I think to a certain extent it depends. It depends on the employer and how used to dealing with requests they are and also what track record they've got, what experiences they've had. Employers who've had good experiences with employees working flexibly tend to become over a period of time more comfortable and more amenable to them. Mm. Employers who perhaps has been, have been burnt are a little bit more cautious. But I think, again, with COVID and hybrid working, we've progressed more quickly than I think we would have had it not been for COVID. And that's come through in terms of the, the flexibility that employers can offer and are under the pressure to offer in recent races for recruitment and retaining talent. Yeah, yeah. I suppose the concern that I have is that you don't always know, and by, by, when I say you, I mean an employer doesn't always know whether flexible working will work from, from day one. And I suppose actually that's true of an employee too. But let me give you an example. Say you've got a new starter who's signed up to working three days a week in the office and two at home. And before they start work, they make a request to work five days at home and they make an application. My concern is that an employer has no way of knowing if that would work out at that point in time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And a lot of the success of a flexible working arrangement is dependent on numerous factors. It's not just can they do the job, but it's what support and supervision do they need? How do they interact with other people? What's their motivation for working? Mm. Are there any other, you know, factors that need to be taken into consideration in terms of is it suitable for them to work at home are they in an appropriate environment so judging multiple factors on a request made on day one can be daunting and potentially difficult but it's worth bearing in mind that although there is the right to make the request on day one there's still the process for the employer to consider it and potentially to turn it down if there isn't a viable business case to support that or you can take a halfway house. So it's not a matter of accepting or declining. You could try to reach a compromise. So, for example, it, in the case you've just outlined, um, you could say, well, we can accommodate four days at home, one day in the office, but an additional commitment to attend meetings. Um, and you can also make it subject to a short probationary period to see if it would actually work in practice. And then if it doesn't work out, obviously through the trial probationary period, you've got the evidence to reject it as a permanent arrangement. 
but that that's not to say it is going to be tricky because sometimes and we are seeing it coming across our desks more from both employer and employee side that working from home arrangements um, can be quite an area of disagreement and we are seeing now a trend towards employers trying to get staff back into the workplace for an increasing number of days. Yeah yeah. Are there any other changes to the flexible working regime that you want to highlight? Yeah, I think there's two further key changes. So day one, right, is the absolute headline term. But then um, currently employees can only make one request a year. That's going to change to two requests a year. And we're also going to have to deal with them as employers in a shorter time frame. So rather than three months that we have currently, that's going to reduce to two months. Yeah, Okay. Okay, And those changes are coming into force in April as well, aren't they, Elaine? They are, yeah. Yeah. So I'm assuming then that your advice is going to be the same as before and that employers need to amend their processes to ensure that they comply with the law. And of course, they can be more generous if they want to to be, but they can't be less so and possibly start to think about how jobs might be done flexibly at the outset, which I think was the original motivation behind these changes. The government were very much considering, weren't they, you know, making employers consider how jobs can be done flexibly right at the beginning of the relationship rather than waiting until they were in post for a while. Yeah, that was that was very much a theme of the consultation to try and make it um, almost the expectation that the jobs could be done flexibly. But I think actually, again, this isn't going to mark a huge change for employers because for the last sort of 18 months, two years, there has been a big societal pressure for employees to be able to work more flexibly. And so businesses have been having this conversation for a while. And for some, it will be easier, for some, it will be harder. And then for some, you've got some in the middle that some roles can be done more flexibly and others not so much. So this is an evolution of kind of conversations and considerations that are happening already. It's just that now we have a different framework to fit it within. Mm. And would you say from your experience of advising employers that the sort of more contentious requests, if I can put them in, in, in that in that way, are about working from home as opposed to what hours or you know work patterns people work? Is that is that the sort of you know the key arguments at the moment? I think so. And I think, it, again, it, it depends and varies between sectors or within businesses and also within the job roles. But historically, I'd say there was more a concern and more a fear sometimes of we don't know what employees are doing if they're working from home and are they taking the mick and they're not really there and they're not working hard. I think for the vast majority of businesses, the experience over COVID showed that the vast majority of employees will flourish under that trust and they will balance it and they will perform. And the ones that aren't and the ones that are perhaps taking advantage will quickly be identified and you can deal with them on a case by case basis. But I think the more recent trend, which is perhaps a bit of a resistance to for home working for a, for a lot of roles is that extra element that gets lost, that coaching, that mentoring, that learning by osmosis, yeah. that that's now starting to come out in terms of people's development and career progression, because there is a time lag from we worked remotely in a lot of um, 
cases during the pandemic and that didn't come through immediately but it is now because people aren't quite at the point we would have expected them to be so I think some of the resistance around homeworking actually comes from a good place of it's not necessarily good for development and progression and we do need to work together in a lot of cases to to make strides in our own careers and as team performance. Mm, interesting. I know that's an ethos you very much believe in, isn't it, in terms of um, getting uh, junior lawyers into the office as often as possible? It is. I think um, I think it, there's a balance. Um, I'm a working mom. We I'm lucky we have a great team. So I know our team works equally as hard as they do in the office. But I think there's lots of soft skills. And I think we learn most, particularly as lawyers, by working with a mixture of different people, seeing different styles, seeing different approaches. I think you pick up really good habit, habits from working with different people. So it, it, having a balance is definitely something I advocate, but I think you can't underestimate being part of a team in the same place and learning and developing that way too. I think I've digressed a little bit so perhaps <laughs> I ought to bring us back on point. Um, I think the third change that you mentioned was one that we've actually covered in a previous podcast and for our listeners that's episode 19 if you want to catch up on it but it's certainly worth flagging again as it could be very significant and that is the new duty on employers to prevent sexual harassment and I'm guessing and correct me if I'm wrong Elaine, that you've picked this up because depressingly it is still a major problem. I remember doing some research for an article I wrote last about this last year and the problem is huge. Um, a, a research done, I think it was by the TUC, said that three in five women have been sexually harassed at work, rising to two in three, can you believe that, in the 25 to 34 age bracket. And often it's at quite a low level and women are not reporting it for a number of reasons and often they decide to to leave their jobs in, instead. Is that your sort of experience? I don't mean your experience of sexual harassment, I mean on behalf of our clients. Yeah, it is. And that's why I picked up on it, because I think there's, especially recently, there's been so much in the news and so much in the media. And I think it would be really easy to assume that it's not happening anymore. But as you've said, the data shows that it is and I remember not too long ago only a couple of years ago I was sat in tribunal and this wasn't on a sexual harassment case it was on a discrimination claim and the judge said it changes over a period of time so now they have fewer cases where someone makes overt comments but it doesn't mean that discrimination doesn't happen anymore it just means it happens in a more clever way I guess and I think it's different isn't it seeing. yeah it is people know that they can't make overt comments but that doesn't mean that kind of harassment doesn't happen in a quieter more subtler way but it's still happening yeah okay so can you explain to our listeners then how this new duty is going to work and what employers will have to do to comply with it? So, yeah, so an employer is already under a duty to prevent sexual harassment under the Equality Act. So an employer is liable for the acts of their staff unless they've taken all reasonable steps to prevent it. So the new duty only applies if the employer is is liable for the sexual harassment. And by that, I mean they've failed that first part of the test. Yeah. So where that happens, so if the employer is in scope to be liable, the tribunal then goes on to consider whether they've complied with the new duty. And this is now a slightly lower test 
So they just have to show that they've taken reasonable steps rather than every reasonable step. So there's quite a difference between the two because every reasonable step means they have to have done everything uh, everything possible. So every reasonable step that could be thought of, whereas the actual threshold is just that they have to have taken reasonable steps. Mm-hmm. And if they haven't taken reasonable steps to prevent the harassment, um, then the tribunal can increase the compensation by up to 25%. So it could be quite a hefty increase. Yeah. So what do employers need to do to prepare then, Elaine? So you it's no longer enough as an employer to sit back and wait for complaints to come in. You have to take a proactive step. Mm-hmm. And what you need to do will be judged in the context of your business and your sector. So there are going to be some businesses and some sectors out there that are going to be at greater risk of this just because um, of that fact. Um, so what we recommend is that employers take the initiative to see what it's like on the ground first of all. So confidential surveys to understand and to litmus test what is happening. Once you have an idea of you know, how women are treated within your organisation and whether this is an issue for you, you can then evaluate um, what steps you need to take. And that might be introducing training or if you already do training to evaluate whether that is effective. Um, You need to be really clear on your communications to say what will and won't be tolerated and what isn't isn't acceptable, but also what the consequences of that will be. So, for example, banter, what is or isn't appropriate, whether there's an awareness by employees that what they're doing is wrong Mm. um, and then following through. So it's not just about updating your diversity and inclusion or your equal opportunities policies. It's about dovetailing those um, with your disciplinary policies and being consistent and making sure that once you've done that training, your line managers are on it and listening for it and dealing with it appropriately at the time. So a big part of this is also going to be um, training for your line managers and across the business. So you've got two elements and um, guess what? We've got some brilliant online and face-to-face training that can help with this if anybody's worried about it as they listen to this podcast. Yeah, I think it's it's really worthwhile emphasising that because a lot of the training that we see um, doesn't cover things like social media, for example. It doesn't cover banter. Um, I mean, it, it covers the obvious things like, you know, inappropriately touching somebody or, as you say, Elaine, making very inappropriate comments. But it's most people understand they don't have to do that. It's the grey parts, isn't it, that often um, businesses need to tackle because that's where a lot of this harassment takes place. It is. And and also behaviour outside work. That can be a grey area sometimes of when is an employer potentially liable? It's not just that as soon as the working day finishes at, say, five o'clock, nothing can happen then that can come back on the employer. It's not that black and white. No, no. So when is that particular duty coming into force? So that's going to come in in the autumn. So not something that you need to do by April, as with the other two um, topics that we've just mentioned. So that's autumn this year. And then, Joe, I think we've covered what I mentioned at the beginning. So um, before we finish, is there anything that you want to mention, Joe? Has anything stood out for you? 
Yeah, I mean, a couple of things, really. So the first are the significant changes that are taking place in relation to holiday pay. But also there's a new right for certain workers to request a predictable working pattern. Um, and both of those, I think, are going to be fairly significant. And for all those listening, don't worry, we're not about to launch into the second part of this podcast on holiday pay because I don't think we can do it justice. No, no. But I think we probably will have to do a separate one at some at some stage because the changes to the working time regulation are horrendous. Um, they've not simplified matters. They've made them a whole lot more complicated. But let me just flag a few things just to raise awareness at this stage. So what the government has done is they have introduced a new category of worker who don't fit within the normal rules on holiday pay or entitlement. OK, and they are people that they call either irregular hours workers. So your zero hours contracts and those that work part of the year only. So those groups or that group of people they accrue holiday in line with the hours that they work. So they don't get 5.6 weeks at the outset. They just accrue holiday as they go along. And for that group of workers, employers can also lawfully roll up their holiday pay and add it to their regular wages. As I've said, that might sound really great and positive, And in one way it is. But the regulations are really not very well worded and they will create a whole range of other problems because of the ambiguities that we're trying to work through at the moment. So my top tip, if you are looking at holiday and holiday pay for those types of workers, you need to take advice because there are some bear traps for the unwary on those. Um, so I was just going to highlight the um our national seminar program so we've got dates coming up soon and um, they're at the end of January on the 30th and the 31st and they are free webinars for anyone to attend so if you want more information on what we've discussed today or you want an overview of what's coming up this year in a little bit more detail please let Joe or I know and we will send you the details we also do regular updates so um if Joe has whetted your appetite in relation to the changes on holiday pay, we're going to be sending out lots of updates and lots of parcels over the next few months. And it's the best way to keep um, up to date in really easy to understand um, content. I've just got a bone to pick with you about that. You said if anybody is listening. Elaine, this is the essential <laughs> podcast for HR professionals. Of course, there'll be people listening. Come on. <laughs> Sorry, not if anybody is listening. If anyone who's listening would like to Absolutely. attend. Come on. Sorry, Joe. Sorry. <laughs> I'm on probation still, aren't I? <laughs> you are. You are. You do. Well, I think we'll leave it there for today. I'd like to thank all of our listeners, Elaine. Um, for supporting this podcast and um, please tune in next month if you want to hear more about the latest employment law updates alongside expert commentary thank you for listening bye-bye thank you bye-bye